everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest and best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder of Question Mark, the industry leader in assessment management software. Today, we welcome not one, but two assessment luminaries, Sharon Schrock and Bill Coscarelli, who co-authored the award-winning book titled Criterion Reference Test Development. Sharon Schrock is Emeritus Professor of Instructional Design and Technology at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, where she coordinated graduate programs in ID and IT. She's the former co-director of the Hewlett-Packard Worldwide Test Development Center and past president of the Association for Education Communications and Technologies Division of Instructional Development, and has served on the editorial boards of most of the major academic journals in the instructional design field. Bill Coscarelli is Emeritus Professor in the Instructional Design Specialization at Southern Illinois University's Carbondale Department of Curriculum and Instruction, and the former co-director of the Hewlett-Packard Worldwide Test Development Center. Bill has been elected as president of the International Society for Performance Improvement and the Association for Educational Communication and Technologies Division for Instructional Development. He was the founding editor of Performance Improvement Quarterly and ISPI's first vice president of publications. Welcome, Sharon and Bill. Thank you. Great to be here, as I say. So let's get started. Perhaps you can tell me how you both uh, got into assessment? Well, I'll start. Uh, when I was in graduate school at Indiana University, of course, it was a program in instructional systems technology. And so systems was the driving ideology behind the field. And as most people know, a system is a uh, self-check kind of an enterprise. You have a desired goal, and then you have to have a feedback mechanism to find out if you're succeeding with your goal. One of the things I noticed about the programming in the literature was that uh, testing at the end of instruction to see if students had in fact mastered the desired competencies. The testing box was always there in the wiring diagram, but there was absolutely no discussion of how a person would construct those tests. And even trying to find literature outside the instructional technology field about that topic was very, very scarce. So my original interest was simply just sparked by the fact that there was clearly a big missing component in something that purported to be uh, a system. I took my first position at Virginia Tech. Uh, I was an assistant professor at Virginia Tech in a big faculty development uh, concern that they had there at the university, and we developed workshops for faculty, and I set up out to create a criterion reference test development workshop for faculty members. Most faculty members, of course, don't know anything about testing. They are like people everywhere. They test the way they were tested, and they write those kinds of tests. And so I set about to create this workshop originally for them. Uh, that is a very, very difficult audience to influence and to change their behavior. And I found that out uh, pretty quickly. When I went to Southern Illinois University and joined their faculty development organization, Bill was already there. And I carried that workshop with me that I had created. And I had an opportunity 
I met a woman at uh, a conference that Arthur Anderson sponsored, and she was looking for somebody for a very big, I don't know, Bill, can we divulge uh, who that first client was? Uh, no. No? Okay. No, I don't remember who. She, I just remember GTE. Yeah, yeah GTE. It was GTE. Uh, they wanted, they were heavy into this. And so for the first time, here was an audience that really wanted to do this. And the original workshop was four days long, but it gave us the opportunity to create this very pragmatic, but very sophisticated workshop in how to measure competencies against a standard. So that's how I got into it. Bill, do you want to? Well, I was busily twiddling my thumbs in Carbondale, working on uh, a decision-making styles inventory and the statistics associated with all of that. And when Sharon arrived and made that contact, it was like, hey, you know that nobody's closed the loop as well. Why don't we get on with this thing and use this as an opportunity to to build a, a model and a workshop? And uh, so off we went. Uh, the company was GTE, which I think has since been absorbed by Verizon. And uh, the big the big thing for us is new consultants in the universe, still not sure exactly what we're going to do, is that our contract let us keep all the original eight and a half by 11 overhead projection screens we used. They would make them and then we got to keep them. So that was, uh, we lugged those things around <laughs> all over the place. One of the things that happened was because of doing our research about the research and testing and then doing the practice in, in a corporate setting is it was an iterative process. So one informed the practice of the other. And so as our workshop evolved, our book evolved, and by the time, you know, it all came together, we had 469 pages and a, a nice workshop. Uh, really, I, I honestly think that one of the reasons why the, the book was so well received is because it's so pragmatic. And the reason that it is, is because it was a workshop that was field tested over and over again before it was ever a book. So basically, you were teaching instructional design and other things at SIU, and then you uh, also did lots of consulting for commercial companies on assessment. Exactly. Well, not in this, you know, on their assessment process. We never created an assessment for anybody. We wouldn't do that, but we showed them as, as process consultants how, how they would do that. Well, I think that's an important distinction uh, too, John, because you find pretty quickly when you get into this that analysis of the content of jobs is absolutely critical to developing a criterion reference test. And so you actually have to have people, or it's most effective to have people uh, who already know that that content very well. They know those competencies very well. It's more effective to have them write the questions than to have outside people try to write the questions who may know something about testing but don't know anything about the job. Uh, in other words, that's part of the linchpin of uh, making it work. And so our work with testing has been, Bill counted them up, 64 different? About 54 global companies and organizations virtually all of them very big organizations that wanted to pursue this. And so we have field tested that process over and over and over again. So tell me about the book and how you decided to write it and uh, what its reception was. Well, basically, we took as an outline for the book, the workshop, but I also had developed a 
class in evaluation and testing for the graduate program in instructional design at SIU. And so I had a lot of material that I had developed for that. And uh, Bill had uh, a, a sabbatical and he created a lot of the material for the book as the workshop evolved. And so Basically, this book, the first edition of the book, which was a fraction of the size of the book is now, but the first edition of the book, we banged that out over a, a Christmas break, uh, I think in 1989. But because because we had done the workshop so many times, the book writing the book went very quickly. All you had to do was sit at the computer and pretend you were talking to the workshop and it just happened. Yes, and the, and the reception to the book was actually very good right from the beginning. I think partly because we weren't the only people who had noticed that there was a glaring omission in the instructional systems literature, which is nobody knew how to measure against uh, competencies, measure behavior and proficiency against against a standard. Yeah, our, our initial clients were all pretty much high tech and they were coming out of California and, and it was as the, the tech field was evolving and people were looking for people to employ in tech, and all of a sudden they got people applying, say, well, I took such and such class at San Jose State University, and you've got 2,000 resumes of people claiming they can do it. The company started thinking, well, wait a minute, there's got to be an easier way to sort this out. And so the idea is, well, if we, we could create a test where we could establish their competence, we wouldn't care where they went to school or whatever. They, we'll just give them that. And so that started a process uh, for internal. And for example, like Hewlett Packard started to deal with things on an internal basis and then slowly thought, wait a minute, we can turn this into an external profit center, which they did quite successfully, primarily focusing on Unix. And they so, weren't the only organization, too, that sought, after we did the workshop internally, sought to market testing on right. their own. Yeah. So that also happened. Yeah, I think the next big step on the book came when we brought Pat Ayers in um, at one point to help us with all the legal issues because we saw as once you got serious about testing, you started dealing with a number of issues, both organizational development and legal. And there was a, a lot of interest in us talking about, well, how does a criterion reference test interface with the legal system? And so Pat was an attorney in California, and so we worked with her and did a fairly comprehensive review of the literature on that, guiding people through the process of criterion reference tests and the, the legal minefield that was out there. Yeah, that was a major addition uh, to the uh, to, in the second edition of the book. Yeah. I think also, I think with the second, I don't even remember if we did on the first, but we were credited with the first published model of criterion reference test development process. And we got the book rearranged so that each chapter matched each box in the model. So it became easy for somebody who was at the workshop to know exactly where to go find the information because the titles all matched between the workshop headings and the, and the textbook headings. So, I mean, I'm more familiar with the third edition, but I think it's probably the best book on testing that I've ever read. And I certainly I'd recommend to our listeners, uh, look for Criterion Reference Test Development, uh, Technical and Legal Guidelines for Corporate Training by Sharon Schrock and uh, Bill Coscarelli, because it's an excellent book. If you're working in the corporate world, it's a very, really very, very, very strong. So you've worked at all these different organizations, a lot of them very large ones. What are the patterns you've seen 
that people don't do as well in testing or need to do better? Uh, well, that would probably deal with that on two levels. The one is sort of the, the micro level, you know, what, what do they need to understand when they're writing the test and giving it? And then the macro level is, uh, are you going to make this thing count for real? And then what happens when it does? First level is that people write tests the way they took tests, which means it's filled with errors everywhere. And it's all at low-level memorization stuff. So people say, well, this test is any good. All you have to do is memorize stuff. And that's probably true because they'll talk about needing the test to match the job, but they, they don't know how to write a test that matches the job. And getting them to think about that issue is, is one of the hardest things we've ever seen. Uh, and Sharon, I want to talk a little bit about what we've come to find out on how important feedback is in that process. Well, it's, it is amazing to us even now that people will call us seeking help and they'll say, we want to focus on item writing. Uh, they want to start with item writing uh, because their experience with testing is that they've got a page in front of them that has questions on it. Uh, you know, it's much easier to start writing items for a norm reference test, you know, for a test that sorts people instead of measuring people, an individual, against a set of competencies. Uh, when you're trying to do criterion reference testing, you absolutely have to do a job analysis because that's where the competencies come from. And if you don't have the competencies, you're not going to be able to do this. And so to get people to just back up a step to do that front-end work uh, is a major hurdle to, to get over. So that's one of the things that we found pretty consistently in organizations. That's kind of a hard sell to get people to do that. And of course, in reality, with criterion reference testing, that's where the, that's where the power of the test is. And if yeah, they it, don't do that, they'll write a bunch of memory level items that look like the tests they took all the way they went through school. Yeah, we found that there's no substitute for making them right, putting their right objective and their item on the wall, giving professional feedback and helping them to see where their flaws are and having them do it again a couple more times before they can begin to internalize the process. It's really hard to get them unstuck uh, from that memory level world. I think associated with it, uh, too, is, is the issue is they have no idea how to set a passing score. The idea that this is a test for which you either mastered or you don't is, is foreign to almost all of them. And no manager really likes it when they understand it because they can't sort people. Oh, you got a 90, you got an 80, so you must be better than that guy that got the 80. In the criterion reference world, you know, if you've, if you've shown you can master it, you can master it, and there's no distinction made amongst scores above that level. Bill, could you? I, I think you kind of explained it, but could you just explain a little bit about the criterion reference versus norm reference model for people who might not be familiar with it? Yeah. Well, the tests that we tend to think of when we think of tests are the large uh, ACT, American College Testing Exam, the SAT, Medical Admissions Test, the Business Test, the GMAT. These are tests that are all designed to compare people against each other. And you think of them typically as a, a norm reference bell-shaped curve where most of the people are in the middle and few people are on either end. And so what you're doing is you're, you're building items that are designed to sort 
people against each other. And they really, uh, not to get into the statistics, but it, it can almost be anything as long as the statistics show that it's, it sorts harder items from easier items amongst people. The criterion referenced world says, well, you know, you're not going to get an A because you got the landing gear down 90% of the way. Uh, that's not good enough. Uh, the good enough is 100% of the way, 100% of the time. And so that's our standard. That's our criterion. So when you, when you go to assess competence in a criterion reference world, there are a number of statistical assumptions and procedures that you have to follow that are similar in some ways to the norm reference world, but very different fundamentally uh, in the criterion referenced world. Now, it's really hard, John, to overstate the significance of that distinction between norm referencing and criterion referencing. The academic testing world is very heavily loaded with norm reference testing. It's much, much better developed and, uh, and communicated. And so the criterion reference testing is actually relatively novel. And I think Bill would agree, it's actually harder to do than norm reference testing is. Yeah, the telling thing on, on that is that for all the instructional design programs in the world and the teacher ed programs in the world, you can't find a single program that has a course set aside to the issue of criterion reference testing. Uh, you, you might get some norm referenced item writing stuff, but uh, we could only wish that every program had a course, then we could take our book and retire in Aruba or something. Um, but the people... Once they get right the instruction, they really don't really want, often want to know what the outcome was. But, but also people use these tests for recruiting and for promoting and uh, checking people's job competence. Can you explain about the task analysis and why that's so important for these kind of tests? Well, those those competencies that you're trying to assess, you know, have to be have to be identified. And that takes a subject matter expert to do that. You have to have people working on the tests that know the job or know the competencies very well. And beyond that, getting into the task analysis of it, uh, competencies are can be ordered hierarchically. In other words, there are complex competencies that describe very well the end game of a set of skills. And then there are all the subordinate competencies that a person has to have in order to perform that more complex competency. So it's learning to think uh, hierarchically about what the competencies are and what level of employee are you trying to assess competencies in, which competencies are appropriate for uh, this group of employees uh, who are going to take the test. So that's a major step, and that's not really taught anywhere. I don't know how many graduate programs in instructional design even have a class in task analysis, but that's a big part of criterion reference testing. Not a big part of norm reference testing, but absolutely critical. And so it's a process of, you know, you're, you've got to flow chart jobs, and sometimes that gives you a handle on how to write uh, a hierarchy of uh, competencies that would be uh, very helpful for creating a criterion reference test. So, so one piece of advice is that uh, you should do a task analysis to work out what it is you're going to test. What other advice would you give? Well, I, I think that one of the most useful things that an organization can do is to cultivate some in-house expertise 
in in the in the testing part of their work. Bill and I have, of course, done this workshop so many times in so many different places. And usually by the afternoon of the first day, we can identify two or three people and a group of workshop attendees who are interested in this and have a knack for this and are going to be very good at it. I don't think Bill and I have ever disagreed on who those individuals are within a larger group. Uh, And we have often recommended to management subsequent to the workshop that they cultivate those people and make them essentially in-house testing consultants for that organization. I mean, I guess where I'm going with this John, is that it's difficult to master, especially that task analysis part, in a short period of time. Testing is complicated enough and fraught enough with issues, uh, legal issues and so forth, that it's in their interest to develop some in-house expertise with people who do this as a major part of their job assignment. And that's also, as it turns out, that's a very hard sell. It's hard to get organizations to do that. Yeah, the other curious thing about the hierarchy and the power of the hierarchy is is deciding. It guides you about where you're going to test. So if you've built a hierarchy and it's filled with a number of sub-skills, people tend to like just carpet bomb with items through all of those pieces, uh, sub-skill items. But the reality is, is that if you test at the highest level, success means that you can do everything below that. And it also means that you only need three or four questions to assess competency in some instances. And uh, that provides some confusion to, to a number of people. And, you know, you just say, look, you know, you don't have to ask them, if, what's, what does this button do? Does that button do? You say, here's the plane, fly it. And if they can fly it, you know that they know what the button can do. So talk to me a little bit about memorization, because you were talking about that uh, earlier. Can you explain to the listeners what, what you mean about why it's important to test about memorization? Well, memorization, if any of the listeners are familiar with Bloom's taxonomy of cognition, and many, many uh, people in the corporate world are familiar with, with Bloom. And in fact, most of the workshop attendees that we see are familiar with it, uh, They, but they may not have spent a lot of time with it. Well, Knowledge is what he called knowledge, which was a bad name for it because it's really memory. Uh, That's the lowest level of cognition. Memory, of course, is absolutely essential. If you can't remember, you probably can't learn much of anything. But as an end goal, it's seldom sufficient. Almost every job that any of us do requires higher cognitive uh, processes than just simply memorizing. People can't just remember what to do. And so for the test to measure mastery of important job skills, the test questions are going to have to get at that higher cognitive level. Uh, I would say that the Minimax strategy is probably uh, at the application level. You know, there are six levels in Bloom, and I would say probably it's about the middle point at a minimum where those test questions should be. If they if they can get up there, they're going to measure the job better. The test doesn't have to be as long, and it's going to be much, much more valid. In other words, it's going to measure genuine competencies. Yeah, and and as you design the questions, there's sort of a continuum to think about, which we talk about in the book. But, you know, on the one end, there's facts, memory level kinds of things. And at the the other end, it's it's 
real world application. And so, you know, for example, when the pilot lands the space shuttle for the first time, that's the first time that pilot has ever flown a space shuttle because you can't just go out and practice flying space shuttles, but you can have very high fidelity simulators that for all purposes and intents do that. And then you can go down a level from that to scenario based. So every time you drop away from full real world, you lose some fidelity, but there's a certain cutoff point uh, in most instances where you can get really pretty close to the minimax strategy, so to speak there, uh, of measuring competence that shows transfer to the job at hand. Well, it's kind of like if you think about what we go through in school, uh, every competent writer uh, started by, by learning the alphabet. You know, that's where it started. And the alphabet is a memorization. So it starts at, at a very low level, but then skills are acquired that are at much higher level of cognition all the way to the creative level, which is at the very top. And one of the other points you made was about setting a cut score and that being difficult for some organizations. Can you explain about that? So the cut score is this this is our level of competence. And, and there are a number of techniques that are out there that you can professionally do it. Some of them are really labor-intensive, requiring large numbers of uh, people with a, a pretty consistent, stable base of knowledge content. For example, English is a second language. But in most of the world, uh, the content changes so fast, especially in the high-tech world, that uh, you've got to find some other technique. And the, the fallback that most people find, the benchmark approach in the, in the business world has been the Angoff technique. And that is one that your subject matter experts can use. And once they understand it, let's share maybe explain that, that you, you get them not only to build the task analysis, at the same time, they're able to understand the process of Angoff and set the cutoff scores all almost in the same workshop. Now, they're basically the Angoff involves the subject matter experts reading items and then estimating what the probability is that the minimally competent, meaning the person who just passes, who is right on the cut line, what's the probability that that person will be able to answer that question correctly? And they go through each item and do that. They do it as a group. Uh, it's amazing how much consensus you normally get among subject matter experts on what that percentage is. And then the cut score is chosen by adding all those probabilities up. And that is probably the most feasible way uh, to set a cut score. And then, of course, you field test it and see if it seems to be working for your organization. What we find is the, the, the toughest thing. I mean, we, we've tried to do this from a distance with subject matter experts, and it's a nightmare. We simply won't do it anymore. You need to lock them in the room, so to speak, and you have to explain to them, and this is where the confusion starts, is that they think the cut score for an item should be what they know. And we say, well, you know, are you that same person that, you know, your, your new hire who's been trained is going to go out to the field? Would they know that? Well, no, they wouldn't know that. Well, how much do they need to know? I mean, and you, you have to go through a, a talking process. And uh, we go through a process where we have them rate an item and put their score out. We put it on a projector and we can see how everybody, you know, somebody picks it. Oh, this is a, you know, a, a high one and this is a low one. And how come you said high? How come you said low? And through a process of give and take, they come to a consensus. And then once that consensus is found, you can 
let them go and you can expect high reliability in their ratings amongst the items. That process also is an opportunity to examine uh, the items, the proposed items for a test in a very thorough way. If you've got an item where you've got a lot of disagreement among subject matter experts on what the probability is that a minimally competent person will be able to answer it, it's, it's usually a bad item or it's based on a flawed or incomplete analysis of the job. And so you can pull a lot of items that are actually going to be defective out of the test yeah. altogether uh, through that angle. Yeah, process. we saw once it happened, there was a, a group that was very, very good. And uh, the one woman said, no, this item's not applicable. And the rest of the group had given it a number. And they said, what do you mean it's not applicable? She said, well, we quit doing that last week. And they all went, oh, I didn't know that. And so, you know, it helps keep it current in the whole process. That's that's lovely. So there's a lawsuit waiting there. We're on, we're almost out of time here now. Could we maybe just end with me asking you, sort of, if you wanted to give one advice, one piece of advice, each of you, to an organization uh, looking to improve its testing? What would that advice be? Well, test above memory. <laughs> test above memory for sure. Don't ignore the uh, task analysis. And then one other point, because cheating. Oh yes. Cheat has the potential to totally invalidate a test. And of course, organizations who do this correctly have usually have a major investment in, uh, in tests and test items. And so if that's compromised through cheating, you've lost the whole game right there. The cheating, for, we did a presentation for a while where we were tracking all the cheating techniques and some of them were stunning. And then the dam broke and so we couldn't even keep track of it. So we quit building the thing because there's so many ways in which cheating is happening now. So that the whole issue of, of security of the items and then if you're talking about distance learning and proctoring, just lots of things you have to manage in that system because there's probably incentives for those students to cheat in, in many situations. The higher the stakes the test has, in other words, the more important it is to them in terms of consequences that they pass, uh, the greater incentive they have to cheat. And so that's sort of a you know conundrum for testing people. Thank you. I would love to go on. This is a, a fascinating uh, conversation, and I think I'd probably do an hour or two if, if I was allowed. But my uh, uh, organizers like to keep these to about 30 minutes, and I think our listeners appreciate that. Sharon, Bill, you are fantastic. You're really my heroine hero on, <laughs> on testing. I really appreciate you giving up time for this. And thank you very much to all our listeners. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Please reach out to me directly at johnonquestionmark.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Question Mark website, questionmark.com, for register for our best practice webinars. And thanks again. And please tune in for another exciting podcast discussion we'll be releasing shortly. Mm -hmm.